Welcome, Grace Fullerton. Good to be with you this morning. Fun to be singing worship songs with you and, uh, yeah, declaring truths about God and truths about ourselves that we need to be reminded of week in and week out. Um, we in America certainly love our freedoms, don't we? You know, uh, some of the ones that come to mind, freedom of speech. We love to be able to proclaim whatever we want, whenever we want, especially in the age of social media. There's a lot that gets proclaimed in the name of freedom of speech. Uh, we certainly love freedom of religion. It's beautiful to be able to come here without fear of somebody going to break down the door and prevent us from worshiping God in the way that we sense is holy and righteous, uh, in spirit and in truth. So those are a couple of the freedoms that we really enjoy about living in America. I wonder if you had a similar experience to the one that I had when I was in grade school. Uh, back in rural North Dakota, I think it was maybe the third or the fourth grade, um, a friend of mine, his name was Kyle. He, he was a farm kid just like me. We were very similar in ways. We were a little bit overweight. We uh, uh, wanted to do what we wanted to do when we wanted to do it for the reason that we wanted to do it, you know, that sort of thing. And um, there was a time when our teacher was teaching, obviously, and our job as students was to be sitting quietly in our desks. Well, Kyle rose up and he took three pencils in his hand and he proceeded to go over to the pencil sharpener on the wall and begin to grind those things. I don't know if we still have pencil sharpeners in the classrooms today, but they make a little bit of noise, right? And he didn't just have one and he, I think he was working it for all it was worth. It was probably that long when he started and about that long when he finished. And when he got done with one, he proceeded into the next one. And our teacher was patient through the first one. But when she saw that he had a handful, she looked at him and said, Kyle, what are you doing? He said, what? It's a free country. I can do what I want. <laughs> can you imagine her response? Yeah. So he, he wasn't ignorant, right? He knew he was living in a free country. He just was choosing to steward that freedom in a way that probably wasn't real appropriate. And we all know a little bit of what that's like. I mean, I, I, I certainly struggle with that in here in my heart as well, is there are righteous ways to steward our freedom and unrighteous ways to steward our freedom. And the Bible actually has something to say about that. So today we will continue our preaching series through the book of 1 Peter. So please open with me to 1 Peter uh, chapter 2. And if you recall, last week Scott helped us by looking at uh, verses... 11 and 12. And as he did, <clears throat> he reminded us of, of three things. He reminded us of who we are, because that's what Peter is doing in verses 11 and 12. He's reminding us of who we are. He says we're beloved. He says we are sojourners. And he says that we're exiles. And he reminded us, Scott reminded us, that our identity shapes our behavior and that our behavior informs, or it ought to at least, inform our identity, right? Uh, secondly, Scott helped us understand what it is that we fight. He helped us understand that our, our passions or our over-desires are the things that we fight against because those things wage war against our souls. And if you recall, um, Scott challenged us to be the church militant by banding together as brothers and sisters in Christ and waging war on sin because there's a, uh, sin wages war on our soul. So uh, that's the second thing that Scott reminded us of last week. And we do that together. We wage war against sin, these, against these over-desires. We do that together. And thirdly, he reminded us how we act. And he said that the way we conduct ourselves in this world matters. 
because our good deeds are a witness to the unbelieving world that can cause them to glorify God. And this last point is the one that we will continue as we continue our preaching service, this uh, preaching series. This last point is one that we'll continue to unpack for weeks to come. Because Peter is going to go ahead and, and continue to ask and answer for us this question that is raised in verse 12. So listen with me to verse 12. If you have it in your Bibles, let's look at 1 Peter 2, verse 12, that says this. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God in the day of visitation. So the question at hand is, what is honorable conduct in the midst of an unbelieving world? What sort of conduct is honorable in today's world, in an unbelieving world? And that, that's the question that Peter, as we continue to preach our way through this book, will continue to answer. Uh, one answer will come today in verse 13. He'll tell us that honorable conduct in an unbelieving world means that citizens submit to their governing officials. Then he'll go on in verse 18 of chapter 2 to tell us that honorable conduct in an unbelieving world looks like slaves submitting to their masters. In chapter 3, verse 1, he'll say that it looks like wives submitting to their husbands. And in chapter 3, verse 7, he'll say that faithful conduct or honorable conduct in an unbelieving world will look like husbands honoring their wives. And lastly, in Verse 8 of chapter 3, he'll say that it will look like church members who are unified, sympathetic, tender-hearted, and humble. So that's a forecast of the coming six weeks or so. Next week is Palm Sunday, the week after is Easter, and then we'll have four more weeks where we'll continue to unpack this question of what does honorable conduct look like in an unbelieving world? But today our scope is to unpack that first one, meaning where citizens submit to the governing authorities. And so as we look at um, this passage of Scripture from 1 Peter, verses 13 through 17, we will ask and answer three different questions as we seek to understand what Peter is talking about here. We'll ask, what conduct is honorable in an unbelieving world? Then we'll ask, why should we live in this way? And lastly, we'll, we'll ask, how is it that we can live in this way? So what is honorable conduct? Why should we live that way? And how can we live that way? So let's look again at 1 Peter 2. I'll read verses 12 through 17. And before I read, uh, let's unite our hearts in prayer. Father, we praise you for who you are. We thank you for Jesus Christ. We thank you for him who is the living word. We thank you for your written word that you have preserved for us. And we do ask that now, as uh, the, the lyric of the song we just sang said, that you'd help us to comprehend the heights of the, of the truth of this word. Uh, Lord, uh, you're about to challenge us with a tall order, and I pray that by your spirit we would understand it. I pray that by your spirit we'd be motivated to obey it. And I pray that by your spirit we would be able to obey it. So, Father, send forth your spirit now. Give us all ears to hear and empower the, the faithful proclamation of your word, I pray. And I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Reading from 1 Peter 2, beginning at verse 12. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Be subject for the Lord's sake 
to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. So what conduct is honorable in an unbelieving world? Peter tells us right out the gate that we live an honorable life when we submit to the governing authorities that God has placed over us. Submitting ourselves to human government is a good deed. It's a good work that he's talking about. It's a good work in God's eyes. Obeying our nation's laws and respecting our nation's leaders is a conduct that is worthy of honor. And that can be a tall order. But this conduct is worthy of honor, I think, for a couple of reasons, a couple of biblical reasons. The first is, Submitting to government officials is an honorable conduct because God is the one who has set these officials over us. The Bible is very clear that God causes kings to rise to power and he causes them to fall again. It also says that he is sovereign over a process like ours that includes a popular vote or an electoral vote. So whether it is one king usurping the power of another through the power of the sword and rising to power in that way, or whether it's a, a popular vote by the people. However that is, the leadership in human government is one that comes to us by the hand of God. He is sovereign over these things. Listen to Daniel chapter 4, verse 25. The Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom He will. That's pretty clear. God is sovereign over the affairs of men, and He entrusts to those kingdoms whomever He will. It's not just happenstance. God is actually involved behind the scenes, causing leaders to be put into place, no matter what the system is that gets them there. The second reason that this is a conduct worthy of honor is that God sets these authorities up for a reason. Look with me at verse 14. Verse 14 says, um, let's back up and look at verse 13 together with 14. He reminds us again, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. Did you hear the two purposes or the job description, if you will, of the governors that were sent by the emperor? It's to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. Human government is one uh, that means by which the Lord restrains the advance of evil in this world. So human governments come with them law enforcement officers whose job it is is to restrain the advance of evil in this world. People that are living according, not according to the law, but who are living contrary to the law are the ones that are arrested and put in jail and, and tried for crimes that are not right for crimes that frankly have a source of evil. And law enforcement has a job description to do that. It's to prevent the advance of evil in this world. Or as Peter says here, punish those who do evil. Secondly, their job is to praise those who do good. How many of you understand or know the motto of the LAPD? Anybody know it? 
No? To serve and protect. Oh, is that right? Did I get it right? Okay. Kent, thanks for your help. Uh, so the, the motto is to protect and to serve. That's the motto of the LAPD. Now, whether or not that was intentionally biblical, do you hear the biblical uh, principle behind those two things? That's what Peter is talking about here. Uh, the LAPD is here to protect us from the advance of evil and to serve us, to spur us on, if you will, to continue to do good deeds. So we need to then order ourselves under the human governments, including law enforcement officials. And there is, I don't know if you notice it, I would guess you do, but down here in Southern California, there is a disdain for law enforcement personnel that is unlike anything I've ever seen in the Midwest. There are so many people that just have no respect at all, whether it be for a sheriff's officer, a deputy, whether it be for the sheriff himself, whether it be for an LAPD officer or a local mall cop, whatever the case might be, anybody that has an authority to uh, curb our conduct so that it conforms with the laws of the land or that it conforms with righteousness ultimately because most of our laws find their their footing their firm grounding in right from wrong in biblical principles but there is a great disdain down here for that so against that sort of authority and that is not right we are not to have that mindset what Peter what God is saying through Peter here is that we are to honor those people we're to respect them they've got a difficult job to do and we don't need to make their job more difficult you know, how many times do you hear about that one gang member or whatever who was commanded by a, an officer to stop? And if he had only stopped, he would have lived. But he continued to run and raised a fake gun to which the officer responded and used his real gun to put him down. And now the officer's the bad guy? Are you kidding? Just submit to the authority and you'll live. It's as easy as that. Now, I know things are complicated. Right? Situations are complicated. I know that there are bad cops. I know all of this. But the principle is this. God sets these people up over us for a reason. And we're to submit to them. That's our job. Our president, our vice president, and the cabinet also fall into this category. How are you submitting to him? Can you submit yourself to him? How about preparing yourself to submit to the one who will become the next president of the United States? Think about that. What name pops into your mind when you think of the most scary scenario that you can imagine? <laughs> think about that person's name. Can you prepare yourself to submit to his or her leadership? That's what God's calling us to here today. That is what, that's honorable conduct in an unbelieving world is for God's people to submit themselves to the governmental authorities that He places over us. Are you ready to submit to that person? Peter's calling us to live in that way. God is using His servant Peter to call us to live in that way. Now you might think about that, think about the current candidates, think about the dishonorable way that they are conducting their campaigns, and say, they're not worthy of my honor. And certainly Peter, when he wrote this, didn't have these people in mind, right? When he says, submit to human government. Well, consider how one contemporary historian uh, 
append a summary of one local political atmosphere. Consider this and see if you can discern who I'm talking about. She was a conniving, power-hungry back-channel dealer who gained political power due to her family connections. And in particular, a marriage of convenience that all those in her inner circle knew to be a sham. Enmeshed in every kind of scandal and political intrigue, and with few political accomplishments of which she could positively boast, she nevertheless gained title as the head of state until her own personal and political corruption caught up with her. He was a boastful, arrogant, megalomaniac who early in his career managed an empire with charismatic skill and leadership later became increasingly erratic and xenophobic. He adored being in the public eye and he had no public shame, giving himself over to the worst kinds of debauchery. He fancied himself as something of an artistic genius and when he sabotaged, indeed destroyed part of his own vast empire, he tried to evade criticism by shifting the blame and scapegoating a minority. Can you tell who this historian was writing about? Does that sound familiar? Emperor Nero, right? And his mom. That's who he's writing about. Does that sound familiar to what we have going on today? <laughs> Just goes to show you there's nothing new under the sun, right? So when Peter calls his people that he's writing to here to submit to every human institution, it's Emperor Nero that is on the throne. And it's Emperor Nero that Peter has in his mind, that he's calling himself and his people to submit to. So yes, it's a tall order for us in America to think about submitting ourselves to every human institution, including the next president. But that is what honorable conduct is in an unbelieving world. We are to submit to that person. And Peter knows what he's calling us to. It is at the hands of Nero that Peter would meet his death by being crucified upside down, according to church history. Submit to every form of human institution, every form of human government. That is honorable conduct in an unbelieving world. That is the conduct that brings God honor and brings Him glory. We live lives that are worthy of honor when we submit to these governing officials. Which then brings us to sec the second question. Why should we live in this way? What is our motivation to submit to our human government? Look with me again at verse 13. Verse 13, Peter says this, Be subject for the Lord's sake. As God's people, we seek to live honorably in an unbelieving world, not for our own sake, not for our own gain, but for the Lord's sake, for what comes to Him through our humble obedience, through our submission to the local government and its officials. We may benefit directly by submitting to the government. We may be able to stay out of jail by submitting to the government. But that's not to be our ultimate motivation. Our ultimate motivation is for the benefit or the good of another, and that is the Lord himself. It's for his sake that we're to submit ourselves to the human government. God may or may not come to us 
when we submit, good may or may not come to us when we submit as citizens. We might actually be met with more opposition when we seek to live a faithful life in the midst of an unbelieving generation. But Peter's telling us that there's something powerful that can happen when we do good before unbelievers. Look again at verse 12. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. The way we conduct ourselves in an unbelieving generation are the good deeds that Peter's talking about here that the evildoers can see when we live that way. And they're seeing the way we live. Our good deeds is something that God can use to cause them to glorify Him on the day of visitation. Perhaps our words fall on deaf ears, but the way we conduct our lives, the attitudes that people see and in and behind our actions are what God can use to create faith in somebody so that on the day of visitation, they end up glorifying God. Do you think of your conduct as an evangelistic tool? That's what Peter's saying here. The way we believers live an honorable life, the way we conduct ourselves, the way we devote ourselves to good deeds and good living is a powerful evangelistic tool that ultimately God can use for His own glory. And that is to be our motivation. Do you realize this? Do you view your conduct as a citizen of the United States as an evangelistic tool? It's not one I normally think of. But Peter would have us to think differently this morning. It does have evangelistic potential. And so we submit to the local governing authorities for the Lord's sake. We do it for His glory, for the building of His kingdom, not for the good that may or may not come to us. And we would do it against all costs. Now, secondly, God has an intended purpose here for us to live in this way. Look again at verse 15. For this is the will of God that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Doing good, our good deeds, living a life that is honorably uh, conducted before the Lord, those good deeds put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. I'm not prone to think of ignorance as something that needs to be silenced. I think... Peter's phrasing here is interesting and worth drilling into. So when we think about ignorance of foolish people, let's unpack first what a fool is. Think biblically. Who is a fool, according to the Bible? Someone that doesn't seek God and, and turns away from God. Right. Psalm 14.1 says this, The fool says in his heart, there is no God. So he's not seeking God. He's, he's denying the existence of God. That's the fool. That's the biblical definition of a fool. So to silence the ignorance of a fool, let's think a little bit about ignorance. So this word here it, that's translated in, in the ESV as ignorance is the Greek word agnosian. It's the word that our English word agnostic comes from. When you think of an agnostic, what is their position? They don't know? Yeah, to not know. I think in particular to not know about the existence of God, right? So, so to silence the ignorance 
of a fool is something that our good deeds can do. So let's try to think about this and illustrate it in this way. So if you are a fool who doesn't believe that God exists and your ears are filled with this thing called ignorance, ignorance is the noise that prevents you from hearing evidence of the existence of God, of being able to perceive that there is a spiritual God and that that spiritual reality of God is realer than anything else that you have ever known, that you ever felt or touched or tasted. So let's look at this ignorance as a clanging symbol. So this is ignorance. It's preventing you from hearing my voice very clearly, isn't it? So I can proclaim the gospel to you and all you hear is this ignorance. But my good works silence this ignorance so that by seeing my good works, you can catch a glimpse of the existence of God. The ignorance becomes silenced by our good deeds. And it is that way that God can use the good deeds of His people in an unbelieving world to bring unbelievers or fools to believe not only in His existence, but to believe Him as Lord and Savior unto eternal life. That's the role of our good deeds in submitting to human governments. We don't do it for our sake. We do it for the Lord's sake because He can use those good deeds to bring people to faith. So our good deeds then become an apologetic tool. Our submission to the government can become an evangelistic tool, and our good deeds are an apologetic tool, both of which God can use to create faith, the miracle of faith, in an unbelieving heart. So we do that good for the Lord's sake. We want to see His kingdom built. We want to see people come to faith. This, this particular passage that Peter writes says it's God's will. So we do it because we want to be humble and obedient to God. But we also know that God's will is that none should perish. So we do this, and God uses it toward the end that fewer should perish, because some are called unto saving faith through observing our good deeds. Is that somewhat clear? I hope so. I'm trying to make that as clear as I can. So thirdly, the third question that we're wrestling with today is, how is it that we're able to live this way? So we know what we're called to do. What does living honorably look like? It looks like submitting to human governments. Why do we do it? We do it for the Lord's sake. Well, how is it that we're able to do this sort of thing? How is it that we can even do that? And let's look at verse 16, which says this, Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. So we, in Christ, are free to be servants of God. We're free. Again, Peter is using identity language. He, you know, he used lots of identity language in last week's passage, talking that we're beloved, we're sojourners, and we're exiles. And now today he's using identity language too, reminding us that we are free. Those of us who are in Christ are free. What are we free from? We're free from slavery. We're free from slavery to sin. Paul talked about Christian freedom in this way in 1 Corinthians 6, 19-20. He says this, You are not your own. You were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. He goes on in, 
And Peter says it in chapter 1, verses 17 and 18. He says, And if you call on him as Father, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from your feudal ways. You were set free from your feudal ways, inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. We've been set free from these feudal ways. Paul goes on in Romans 6 to explain it this way. Jesse used uh, a verse, a couple of verses earlier than this to talk about this freedom from slavery to sin. Paul continues to unpack it here in verses 20 through 23. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, which is eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So those of us who are in Christ have been freed from slavery to sin. But it's not just it. We're not just freed from something. We're freed to something. We're freed to this eternal life salvation that comes through being a slave or a servant of the Lord himself, a slave or a servant of God. My friend Kyle did not quite understand this concept. He understood freedom. But he interpreted that freedom as the right to live any way he wanted to. That's not what Christian freedom is about. Christian freedom might be well explained by the late Bob Sosi. And if I may paraphrase him, he said it in this way. He said, Christians are never promised freedom from servitude. Just a transfer of ownership from a master that leads to death to a master who brings eternal life. We're all born in sin, slaves to sin. By God's grace, He creates the miracle of faith in our heart along the way. And when He does that, at the moment of regeneration, we are delivered from our slavery to sin, and we are now transferred into slavery as a servant of God. That's our duty. That's our right. We're not our own. We've been bought with a price, and that price was the precious blood of Christ. So we do this, and we are able to do this because we're free to submit, because we're no longer slaves to sin. Before we were delivered from our sin, the only thing we could do was sin. You could do semi-good deeds that looked right on the, on the outside, but the motivation was purely selfish. It was an impure motivation that was not a truly good deed. But now, being freed from sin, we are free to live in this way where we can do truly righteous good deeds. That includes submitting to human governments. For not our sake, but the sake of the Lord, who is the one who shed his blood to purchase our freedom. You see how it all comes full circle. We're not to use our freedom as a cover-up for evil. In other words, we are not to claim Christian liberty as a means of pursuing our passions or our over-desires that Scott taught us about last week. Our Christian freedom is a freedom from sin toward slavery to God, that we might do His will and fulfill righteousness. 
We can't do this apart from His work in our life. And we are able to live this way because we do have a new master who makes it possible. And He invites us to join Him in His work. Lastly, servants of God are to live in some particular ways. Look with me at verse 17. Servants of God, honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. So we're to honor everyone, including the current front runner of the political campaign. We're to honor everyone. It's all inclusive. And that can feel like a tall order, right? Especially when people's conduct is not honorable. But there's no conditional clause here. God, through Peter, says we're to honor everyone. That's how we're to live as Christians. That's how we're to live as slaves of God. Honoring everyone. We honor everyone because everyone that is human has been born and made in the image of God. We, even in our fallen state, bear the image of God Himself. Sin mars that image, yes. And we may look at a person and wonder if the image of God is there because it's so marred or covered, if you will, by sin. But it is there. And because every human has been made in the image of God, we owe them honor. We owe them respect. Secondly, we are to love the brotherhood. That's the brothers and sisters of the church. We're to love them. Yes, we're to honor one another within the church because we're supposed to honor everyone. But we are to love the brotherhood. We are to love the sisters and brothers of the church. Jesus said, greater love has no man than this, than he lay down his life for his friend. We're to love one another enough to lay down our lives. We are to set aside our own personal preferences, the way we would wish we would spend our time or our talents or our money. And we're to offer those for the good of the church. Humbly serving one another out of a heart of love, following the example of Jesus who laid down his very life for the church. So we come together as the church, empowered by the Holy Spirit, gifted by the Holy Spirit, and that spiritual gift that each of you have is to be stewarded in the context of the church for one another's good, for the common good, is what Paul says in 1 Corinthians. So we are to love the church, and that love is to motivate us to service. So maybe some of you are feeling the tug of the Spirit to step up and serve as an usher because we need ushers. Maybe you want to further develop your gift of evangelism because we need people going outside these walls and calling people unto saving faith in Christ. Maybe you want to be a one-on-one -on -one discipler and build into the other people and further develop other people's gifts so that we are a body that does what God has called us to do, and that is to make disciples. That includes going outside the church walls and proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ so that people are saved and regenerated and converted, bringing them back into the walls of the church, a safe environment here in which they can learn to grow into this identity that is theirs in Christ, which they can continue to repent and, and unlearn bad habits just like you and I are still doing. And we do this in community. We do this together. We're to love the brotherhood. We're to love the brothers and sisters of the church. Thirdly, we're to fear God. We're not to fear the emperor. We're not to fear the president. 
Though we might fear that some people may step into that office, we're not to fear them. We're to fear God alone. That's, that's something that God has been teaching His people since the beginning of time. In Deuteronomy it says, You shall fear God and Him only shall you serve. God is the only one we're to fear. We're not to fear our fellow brothers and sisters in the church. And that's a, that's a point of contention for me. Uh, what I mean by that is, I am prone to the sin of the fear of man. I want you to like me. And I want you to be happy. But sometimes, fearing God supremely will have me to conduct my life or speak to you in a way that may not make you happy and may not make you like me. But I'm not supposed to do that as a jerk. I'm supposed to do that motivated by my love for the brotherhood, right? I'm supposed to recognize sin in your life and lovingly confront you and speak the truth to you in love. That may not make you like me. But my ultimate fear of the Lord would behoove me to do that, despite it's going to grate against my people-pleasing tendencies. So what is it for you that loving the brotherhood needs to look like? What is it for you that will be a direct application of supremely fearing God and God alone? Not fearing man, not fearing a governmental leader, not fearing your circumstances. The only one we are to fear is God and God alone. That's how we live as a servant of God. And we can do that because we've been freed from sin to live this way. And lastly, Peter says we are to honor the emperor. Not fear the emperor. Not necessarily even love the emperor. But we honor the emperor. And he's already told us how we do that. We submit to the authority that God has given him over us. We live lives of submission to governmental authorities. Now, in America, that, is, that involves us, right? We are a people who has some voice in who becomes our next emperor, in who becomes our next president. So I think a faithful application of this, then, is we get involved in that process. We understand who these candidates are. We understand what they stand for. And we seek to vote for one of them who we see lines up most closely with what we understand the Word of God to teach. That can be some hard work. That can be a purely or impurely motivated task. But we are called to be involved in it. And as we are involved in it, whether or not our chosen candidate in our mind is ultimately elected and ultimately placed over us in authority, then our job becomes to submit to that person. Can we do that? We must do that. We're to honor that person. And we honor that person by submitting to them. But we only submit to them insofar as they don't command us to sin. You understand? If our leader calls us to live in a way that is against biblical principles, then we part, I think, from this call to submission because they are no longer leading us for our good. That is a blurry and messy line, and I probably opened up a whole can of worms that we don't have time to walk into today. But I, I, want, you to hear, I want you to hear my heart in this. We submit to our human authorities, our governmental leaders, but we don't follow them into sin. Is that clear? So be people who are involved in the process. 
be people who are slaves of God and who are willing to submit to our governmental leaders as an act of submission to God himself because he is the one that places them over us. That's what it means to live honorable conduct in an unbelieving world. We submit to our human authorities. We do so not for our own sake, but for the sake of the Lord, because he can use us through that to build his kingdom and to glorify himself. And we are empowered to live in this way when we may or may not want to live in this way because we've been set free from sin. We're not slaves to sin anymore. Praise God in Christ, we are free from that. But we're not free to live in any old way that we want to. We're free now to not obey the will of sin, but to obey the will of the Lord who calls us to service that looks like this, everything that we've talked about this morning. So as we think about the truths of this passage, and as we wrestle with how to apply this to our lives, let me ask you these questions. Examine them in the quiet of your own heart. How are you doing at submitting to governmental officials? How are you doing at submitting to our current president, or our current governor, or the mayor of our city? Are you prepared to subject yourself to the next president of the United States for the Lord's sake, whoever that might be? Are you seeking to live a life that can silence the ignorance of godless men? I went to see my son's uh, musical play yesterday afternoon, and after that, I had the opportunity to go to a, uh, a reception put on by the Fullerton Academy of the Arts Foundation. And in that, I found up having a conversation with a man I'd never met. His name was Tom. And Tom was raised in the Midwest, like I was. And Tom was raised in the church, like I was. But Tom now doesn't believe that God exists. And the Lord just opened the door. He asked me a question that opened the door wide open so that I could tell him my story of coming to Christ and what that looked like. And I could proclaim Christ's excellencies to him and give a defense for the hope that is in me, just like Peter is going to exhort us a little bit later in this book. God gave me that opportunity to a man who God biblically would define as a fool. And I pray that perhaps my good deeds before him yesterday may have done a little bit to silence that clanging symbol of his ignorance so that he might come to faith. I, I let him know that uh, I was one of the elders of a church just down the road and that there was a, a group of people there willing to help him wrestle with God's existence if his conscience began to prick him. So let's pray for Tom and people like him. Our city's full of them. Our families are full of them. And let's be people who live in a way that can silence the ignorance of these people so that they can hear God's voice come to perceive his existence and come to trust him as Lord and Savior. How are you stewarding your freedom? As a cover for evil to advance your own plans and purposes? Or as a slave of God? How are you at honoring everyone? That grumpy uncle? That prickly church member? How are you doing at honoring them? How do you love the church? Are you serving her? Are you seeking to build her up and the people that make her up so that she shines God's glory more brightly because of your service? 
And does your life reflect your fear of God, your supreme fear of God? These are questions that I want us to spend just a couple of minutes in silence wrestling with. And then I'll close us in prayer in a minute. (coughs) Father, we come to you in Jesus' name now, thanking you and praising you for um, your righteous life, the, the righteous life of your son who completely fulfilled your law. And we thank you for his sacrifice, his shed blood, the means by which we have been freed from slavery to sin. Lord, we worship you for that. And we pray for boldness, Lord. We pray for bravery to be able to live lives of humble submission to our local governing authorities as a a direct application of our humble submission and fear for you. I pray, Lord, for each one gathered here and the families that they represent, Lord, that you would help us to be increasingly honorable in this unbelieving world and that you would use our conduct and our attitudes, Lord, as an apologetic, as an evangelistic tool, as a means by which you call people unto yourself through saving faith in Jesus Christ so that, Lord, this church is built according to your plan and so that disciples are made according to your command and so that the church is equipped with every part that is working properly so that it builds itself up in love. Lord, we praise you that this is your plan for the church. You want to display your manifold wisdom to the spiritual forces of darkness even through this church. We trust you for that. So Lord, help us, I pray today, to be a people who submit to the local government. Help us to be a people who are motivated by your glory for your sake and who recognize the freedom that is ours as our empowerment to live as your slaves, not to live self-fulfilling lives. So Lord, by your grace and through the power of your spirit, we will walk in obedience to these truths for your glory, for your sake, for the sake of your name, Lord Jesus. And it's in your name that we pray. Amen.